Welcome uh, to WMUA, Professor Paul Collins uh, with the Political Science and Legal Studies Department. Thank you very much, Rebecca. It's great to be on with you. Um, it's great to have you. Uh, we wanted to kind of get a localized understanding of Justice Breyer's retirement, and I came across an article that you wrote, and it felt like the perfect opportunity. Um, justices tend to uh, grow old on the on the Supreme Court. They enjoy life tenure, um, and Justice Breyer is no exception. Uh, he's retiring at the age of 83 after 28 years on the bench. Um, so can you describe, to the extent that it's possible to encapsulate you know, 28 years of service, uh, can you describe Justice Breyer's jurisprudence, you know, his ideology, uh, his role uh, as it stands on the Supreme Court? I can try. <laughs> so I think the two words that come to mind when we think about Justice Breyer are moderate and pragmatist. Um, Breyer found himself to be a pretty moderate liberal over the course of his career. He often sought to find middle ground with his conservative colleagues. And a lot of that is also reflected with the second quality I mentioned, which is he was a pretty pragmatic justice. So he wasn't one of these justices that look for really complicated tests to establish how we weigh certain rights or liberties. He was more of the type that gave a lot of attention to how people would be affected by the court's decisions and tried to make workable rules that people would understand and that people could follow. Um, and I think that'll be his legacy when we think about him in the future. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, um, you know, you wrote this opinion piece for theconversation.com. I understand it was also picked up by The Washington Post um, with North Illinois University professor Artemis Ward. Uh, and you're proposing that we reassess term limits for justices on the Supreme Court uh, and that the perfect time to do that reassessment is now with Justice Breyer's retirement. Um, so what are some of the shortcomings of life tenure and how does the plan that you're proposing, that alternative that you propose in your, in your column, uh, in your piece, how does that alternative mitigate those limitations? Yeah, so I th th there's a lot of limitations of life tenure. I'll focus on two. And one of them is that it really ri it raises the stakes of appointing a Supreme Court justice because vacancies in some instances can occur almost at random. Like Donald Trump gets three Supreme Court appointees, but Jimmy Carter gets zero, right? And that just is sort of luck. Trump kind of lucked out in that situation and Jimmy Carter didn't. And in the modern era, the stakes are really high, especially in, in terms of partisanship for making Supreme Court appointments. And in fact, the replacement of Justice Breyer, the stakes actually aren't that high because it's going to be a liberal for a liberal and the Democrats control the White House and the Senate. So they're not quite as high this time, but they were certainly extraordinarily high when Amy Coney Barrett replaced Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for example. So if you take away term limits, appointments become predictable. And so there's not as much at stake in any given appointment. The second reason why term limits are so problematic is it's what you pointed out. Justices serve for like 25 years. They serve into their 80s. And the more that they're on the bench, the longer that they're on the bench, the more disconnected they tend to become from the public. And so you have justices serving two, three decades that are truly disconnected from the public that they're supposed to represent. So if you had 18-year terms, 
you know, maybe they'd become disconnected at 18 years, but no more than 18 years. And so you would probably look at the Supreme Court and see more of America reflected in that institution. And you would see the justices on the Supreme Court hold values that more closely align with contemporary America. Mm -hmm. Do you have any recent examples of that disconnect, of that rift, this kind of trend where, you know, older justices hold less representative beliefs uh, and incorporate those beliefs into their uh, their, the way that they adjudicate certain cases? Probably the best example of that is the late Antonin Scalia. So Scalia is appointed in the mid-1980s at a time where it was totally normal um, throughout this country to criminalize homosexuality. And that's a view that he held on the Supreme Court for his entire tenure. And so while America was progressing on the issue of LGBTQ plus rights and was getting rid of laws that criminalize sodomy, for example, Scalia still felt it was perfectly appropriate for states to criminalize homosexuality if they felt that it was in their best interest to do so. You know, that's almost unimaginable from today's standard, but that was permissible because Scalia's view wasn't out of line in the mid-1980s, and he never had to progress because once he was confirmed on the Supreme Court, he had a lifetime appointment, and so there was no need to update those values, and that seems pretty problematic. Right. And like you said, uh, this is going to be likely a low-stakes replacement, but we've... um, you know, it's an opportunity for President Joe Biden to kind of deliver on one of his promises, one of his campaign promises, to uh, to nominate to the Supreme Court the first black female justice. Um, and, you know, we have an example on the Supreme Court of a black justice who uh, has not necessarily reflected progressive beliefs. Where does, uh, you know, identity, fa- like, what are the ramifications of Justice Breyer's retirement in the sense that it shifts uh, maybe the demographics on the Supreme Court? And what are the risks uh, that maybe those demographic shifts won't necessarily reflect the ideological progression uh, that, you know, is insinuated by a progressive president appointing a black woman to the Supreme Court? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's been very little racial diversity on the Supreme Court in in its history. The first black man was Thurgood Marshall, who was a a liberal giant. He's replaced by Clarence Thomas, who's a conservative giant. And President Biden, we're we're quite confident that he'll make good on his pledge to nominate the first black woman to the Supreme Court. And I think that she'll differ from Breyer in a couple different ways. First of all, I, because she's younger, I think she's going to hold values that more closely reflect the America that that she'll represent. Um, second of all, you know, it's going to diversify the court. And so when, when people look at the Supreme Court, they'll see more of themselves in the court, which is a good thing. The court throughout its history has been almost entirely dominated by old white men, particularly old Protestant white men from the Ivy Leagues. And so there's been very little diversity in in a number of regards on the Supreme Court. So that will be important. Um, Now, that being said, race doesn't necessarily map on to how a judge is going to vote. Um, I think it's safe to say that because President Biden is going to nominate somebody that has some sort of democratic liberal bona fides that we can expect at a minimum, a moderate liberal justice, some in progressive circles are pushing for a more liberal justice um, than 
uh, Biden might be comfortable with. And, and we'll see how that plays out in the next couple of weeks as he makes up his mind. Do, you, do we know yet who uh, President Biden is you know, mulling over uh, who he might nominate? We have a good sense of who's on his so-called short list. Um, it's a number of highly qualified individuals. It looks to me like there's three front runners. Um, I my guess is that Judge Katanji Brown Jackson will be the appointment, and that's the that's the preferred justice of progressives in the Democratic Party. That the sense is that she's a little bit more outspoken than some of the other folks on the short list and that she has some more liberal bona fides than some of the other contenders. Um, I would probably say the second contender is Michelle Childs from South Carolina. She's a favorite of um, representatives in South Carolina, including Lindsey Graham, the Republican. And so Graham is putting a lot of pressure on Biden to appoint her, basically kind of dangling his vote out there. That's causing progressives in the Democratic Party some pause because they're wondering what Graham knows that they might not know. And they're worried that Judge Childs might be a little bit moderate. Um, another name that's being mentioned a lot is uh, Judge Leandra Kruger um, from the Supreme Court of California. She also has um, a sort of indications in her background of moderatism. She worked in both the George W. Bush and the Barack Obama administrations. So that's causing some pause, too, in, in the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Those, those three seem to be the main contenders. There's a lot of other folks on the list, too. Mm -hmm. um, but what we know about what Supreme Court appointees tend to look like, that leads a lot of folks, including me, to, to think that Judge Brown Jackson might end up being the choice. Uh, Judge Childs was being, I, I think I read something about her name being pushed by uh, Congressman Clyburn. Mm -hmm. uh, so in a sense, you know, what happens on the Supreme Court uh, is, and what happens in the future of the Supreme Court is as much a political maneuver as it is, you know, a judiciary, like uh, an investment in the judiciary. Uh, and I think one of the other manifestations of that kind of duality and in, in the role of the Supreme Court is um, the divisiveness of the issues that are ascending to the Supreme Court. And in June, we're looking at cases addressing abortion, um, some very, very, you know, hot button issues in American politics. Uh, you know, this isn't necessarily directly related to Justice Breyer's retirement, but in the near future of the Supreme Court, what can we expect Conservative decisions. Um, so there's a six to three conservative majority on the Supreme Court. The confirmation of President Biden's appointee is not going to change that. Um, Chief Justice Roberts has sort of moved a little bit to the center and finds himself more of a moderate conservative these days. But because there's five conservative justices to the right of him, they don't need his vote. Um, and so the promises that you saw made under the Trump administration and in the conservative legal movement are probably going to start coming to fruition. Um, while I personally don't think Roe versus Wade will be overruled, I do think that the Texas law, you know, severely restricting access to abortion will be upheld. Um, I'm fully confident the New York state law regarding concealed carry um, will be struck down. Um, I think the Supreme Court's very likely to uphold further limitations on voting rights. And so all of the things that were 
sought after in the conservative legal movement, we're seeing those cases come up, and I think we're going to see the decisions go the way that the conservative legal movement has been hoping for. So, you know, th- and this could happen for a very long time mm-hmm. because it's not only a six to three majority on the Supreme Court, but members of that majority are quite young and will be on the court for possibly 20 to 30 more years. So we're going to begin to see, you know, the enduring consequences of President Trump's appointments kind of surface in June or July. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've already seen uh, some of the some of it surface with respect to to voting rights. But you're this is the first term since all this is the first term where I think I can look at it and say, OK, here it comes. Mm-hmm. Um the past couple of years, the docket of the Supreme Court, it hasn't been inconsequential, but it hasn't had these like hugely significant issues like abortion rights, like voting rights, like the scope of the Second Amendment. This is the term that has some of the most significant cases that we've seen in the last five years or so. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll wait and see. Uh, those are all of my questions for you. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about Justice Breyer's retirement uh, that you might like to say? The only thing I'll add is that in terms of a timeline, it looks like the president is going to make his nomination at the end of February, and then the Senate has promised to move relatively quickly. So it's entirely possible that we'll have a new justice confirmed by the end of April or or early April. That person actually won't get on the bench until the end of the term, which will be at the very end of June or the beginning of July. So we'll have a kind of justice in waiting for a couple months. Okay. Well, thank you for that uh, for that detail. Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, My pleasure, Rebecca. Thank you. Yeah. You're listening to WMUA News.